0: the inspired history, true history, that God gave us of the building of his church. Amen? Beginning in Acts 20, verse 13. And we went before to ship and sailed unto Azos, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, minded himself to go afoot. And when he met with us at Azos, we took him in and came to And we sailed thence, and came the next day over against Chylos, And the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium. And the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know, from the first day that I came unto Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. And now I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Say that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, that was it. <laughs> yes, sir. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us a true history of the establishing and building up of your church, Lord. And that building up is something you do to this very day. Lord, we pray now that be with the preacher, Lord, help him preach it straight, Lord, and according to your word, the promise in your word, Lord, that your word never returns unto you void, but it accomplishes the purpose for what you sent it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that also according to your word, that your word, for all yours who are present and listening, Lord, that it will bear fruit in their lives and build them up, Lord. And that for any lost sheep out there would hear, Lord, that this word would settle in their hearts and would bear fruit in their lives, bringing them to salvation, Lord. Lord, we pray, be glorified through the preaching of your word, Lord. And Lord, be glorified throughout the land on this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Amen. Well, good to have us all gathered together once again this morning and having the Lord's Word, obviously, in our hands. And as many of you know, we are uh, we preach expository through the Bible, and we have been uh, ever so... Uh, how should we say? depends on uh, what era you preached in. Uh, you know, uh, George Whitfield would say, I'm going kind of slow, and John Bunyan would be saying, I'm going kind of slow. But I think the Lord's got us going at a good time. Just first by verse through the inspired, as as, uh, as Brother Howard said, the inspired history of the church. And many of you remember, uh, as some weren't here, but many of you who were here last time we were together here in the book of Acts, we we remember, don't we, that the Apostle Paul had engaged in, as the Bible calls it, long in preaching. And uh, we remember as Paul is engaged long in preaching, we looked at the scripture and we saw there that he preached for a minimum of six hours. So he's there, and then while he's preaching and the candlelight's burning, amen, because that's what they used, the Bible says there was many lights, there was many candles in there, a man by the name of Eutychus fell asleep, and uh, Eutychus then fell out of the window three stories and, and to his death on the ground, and Paul, by the power of the Holy Ghost, went down to where the dead man lay and reversed his death. And we talked about what an amazing thing that is, that Christ has the power over death. Think of that. We're used to dying, not the reverse of that. We're used to you know, being raised back to life. And this is what happened when, uh, in our last portion of text that we were in. And we remember, don't we, that Paul is indeed on his way to Jerusalem to deliver the offering that's been taken up by the Gentile churches. We know that there was a famine there, and so Paul wanted to use the Gentile churches to bring unity, amen. We, 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 we studied through that, what that was to be a Jew and a Gentile, and how Christ has brought them together. And so the Gentile churches took up an offering, and Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem to deliver that offering to the churches, to help relieve them there. In fact, his intentions, the Bible says here this morning, is to arrive by the day of Pentecost. Look at verse number 16. We're going to just quickly, as as Luke gives us, again, continues his inspired geography lesson. Amen? Because again, we've followed this all along. God led Luke to write these things, and he's telling us, hey, this is where we went. This is what we did. And so we've got this morning, again, this inspired geography that uh, continues on. Look at verse number 16. Paul's intention is to get there before the day of Pentecost. Look there. If you would, at verse number 16, for Paul determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time in Asia for he hasted if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So again, this is what we're seeing. Paul is kind of in a hurried kind of sense. He's trying to get to Jerusalem, but some things occur in between uh, as he now is traveling and is about to leave Troas and he leaves Troas and he's heading for Miletus And uh, some of them other words that Brother Howard was, uh, other cities that we have listed here. And it's amazing. It's about a five-day journey from Troas to Miletus where Paul will encamp, where he will then call the elders of the church at Ephesus to him. So again, Luke continues his his inspired journey that they've taken there. And in fact, you, you look there that Paul decided not to get on the ship with the rest of the brethren. He decided to go afoot to travel, uh, well, about 10 miles less, 30 miles by ship, 20 miles by foot. And again, you see there in verse 13, look what the Bible says. Again, as we're just traveling along till we get to Miletus, when the text really begins to take off. Look at verse number 13. And he went before to ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take in Paul, for he had appointed minding himself to go afoot. And so the apostle Paul, instead of jumping on the ship with them all, he decides he's going to walk along the way. And then Luke tells us that after he walked the 20 miles, that he did indeed get aboard the ship at Asos. And the next day they came to Mytilene, the seaport island of Lesbos. If you look there again at verse 14, again, there's no misunderstanding. He is giving us a direct directions the way that they're going. I wish I had a map. We could have a map up here. I could show you just exactly how they traveled. Look there if you would, again at verse number 14, again, as we're going along. And when he met with us at Assos, he took him in and came to Mytilene, which is exactly what Paul says, which is exactly what he did, exactly what Luke is writing. And if you, you understand, the next day they sailed to Chios. They sailed by that island. They kept sailing. Again, they're traveling. They're, they're going, if you will, to Samos, and they anchored in Trogillium, the port of the mainland, about a mile from Samos there as we understand that. And then verse 15 tells us the next day they sailed to Miletus, which was a large port at the mouth, if you will, of the Meander river. And it's, this is an important spot as we are there. It's here as they arrive in Miletus at this port, if you will, that the ship would take on voluminous amounts of food, <laughs> voluminous amounts of things that they needed to cross the sea on their way as Paul is going here on his way back to his home church as he travels to Jerusalem. And if you look there, amen, Paul sends for the elders. It would have taken a couple of days, possibly three days, for them to load the ship. So Paul then has God, opens up this door for Paul, he's sitting in Miletus, he sends for the elders there. So the elders travel to him, the 35 miles roughly, back to Miletus where Paul is at. And uh, they meet with him there. Look at verses 17 and 18 again, just as we're moving along in our text. Look at verses 17 and 18. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I've been to you all at all seasons. And so again, we see there again that Paul calls the elders. They come to him in Miletus. And it is an amazing thing because Paul, as you know, as we have been in the text, has been here at Ephesus for three years. He's been there with them. There's been some troubled times, but there's also been some very fruitful times. And so Paul is calling the elders together to, uh, to say his final goodbye and to exhort them, Brother, and again, this is what's so important this morning as we, as we see what Paul does as he exhorts the elders there at Ephesus. And I'm not going to get into eldership and all that. We have three elders in our church. We believe that's biblical, so we follow the, the biblical pattern of eldership. And, and so, Dean, I would highly recommend last week, Dean did a very, 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 very godly job describing elders, how they set it all up. But this morning, what we're going to look at is Paul begins to exhort by using how he lived. And again, brethren, this is so important as, as an elder, even as a Christian, brothers, even as Christians... He begins to exhort them, and he uses himself as an example. Amen. And many people, it's an amazing thing how they've accused Paul, saying that the Apostle Paul here is boasting, that he's bragging about what he is and who he is. And brother, nothing could be further from the truth. The Apostle Paul's not bragging. In fact, if you just read the text, you find out very quickly that Paul's using himself as a godly, holy, Example And brother, and there's some things here when a pastor reads the text. There's nothing like reading a text and having that text dig deep down into your own heart. It's a stunning thing because it reveals in you some of the frailties that you have as a pastor. And so what Paul is doing here, he's revealing to the elders, he says, as I've lived among you, so you too, as you, as you lead the church at Ephesus, these are the qualities, these are the things that are important, brethren, for an elder, for a Christian, okay, this concludes Christians, but specifically here he's talking about elders, leaders of the church, and again, you look at this and you go, whew, boy, I've got, oh Lord, the Spirit of God's really got to do some work on me here in this particular area, and there was a couple of them here as I was studying this out that he really drilled down into my own heart now in verses 19 20 and 21 again Paul's not boasting he literally explains to us what he means when he says hey follow me follow the example you know how Christ like I was when I was leading you guys and leading the church there Look at verse number 19. Look at the first thing as he goes on and says, these are the qualities, these are the things that should, if you will, be entwined in the heart of the man who is leading the church. Men, let me say men. The men who are leading the church. Look there at verse number 19. He says, you know how I've been amongst you since I've been here? Look what he says. Look at verse 19. The first three words immediately tells us that Paul is hardly boasting about anything. In fact, look what it says there, serving the Lord. What Paul is doing here, brother, is immediately reminding the elders whose authority, whose power, whose rulership, whose lordship that he and every elder is under. It is the Lord. That's why he says this. An amazing thing, how can you say a man is boasting when he understands that he is a servant? In fact, that word serving, the word Lord there, if you look at it, is the God of holy scriptures. It is the God who alone is sovereign, who in himself possesses all authority. This is what Paul is saying. He's submitting himself to the Lord. He's saying, I serve the Lord. It is the sovereign God who has complete control, complete sovereignty over all things and all authority. Brother, absolute ownership. Again, brethren, this is the thing that many elders will do. I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. But it's a stunning thing. They will get into a position. And instead of being a servant, which is what we're going to look at, that word serving comes from the word doulos. It means slave, that he is a slave to the Lord. This is literally what it means. And elders many times, will, it'll go to their heads, and they'll try and do what Peter says not to do. And that is to lord it over the shepherd and the sheep of God. He says, don't do that. There's some characteristics here that Paul brings out that if you're going to be an elder, a leader in a church, again, these are things, brethren, that are so important so that the church and the elders can, if you will, exist in unity and in harmony and together. When you become a, if you will, and I've been involved in some churches, believe you me, brethren, where the pastor thinks he's the ruler of all, it's a stunning thing to behold. The pastor's not the ruler of all. Christ is the ruler of all. The pastor's under his leadership, amen? And then there's some qualities that we as elders must have in order to properly lead the church, if you will. The Lord, this is who Paul says he is serving, the Lord, sovereign God. Again, I said, it's a slave who's in servitude, which as we know, was Paul's godly understanding and his godly practice. Again, brethren, as we look at how Paul lived amongst them. Look what the Bible says concerning Paul. Look there, if you would, at verse number 24. And again, he's under the lordship of Christ. He's under the Lord, the headship of God, the, the servant, if you will. Look whose ministry he's been put in charge of. He even says it isn't even mine. And brethren, as an elder, it's not yours either. It is indeed. Look at verse number 24. Look what he says there. The Bible says, and... But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received from who? From the Lord. It's not your ministry, brethren. And again, Paul is far from, I don't know how anybody could say he's boasting. He's actually submitting to the Lord. He's talking about the lordship that the Lord has over him. It isn't even my ministry. It's the one that the Lord has given to me. That's ownership, brethren. It's his ministry. And when one figures that out, it changes your attitude. It changes your heart. It changes your mind concerning those whom God has given us as, shepherd, as under shepherds to watch over and take care of. It changes everything. It really does. Look at Acts chapter twenty-seven. Paul again here uses this same terminology. Serve it means to be a slave, it means to be underneath authority, supreme here ultimately sovereign authority, God himself. look what he says there in acts chapter twenty seven he uses this word again. look at verse number twenty two of acts twenty seven he says, and now I exhort you to be of good cheer. I love that. he says that a whole bunch of times in this in this chapter, but we 're not going to look at that verse twenty three for there stood by me this night the angel of God. Whose I am and whom I what? Whom I serve. There's that terminology again. He's simply giving all the credit, all the glory to God. And we know what's going to happen here. The shipwreck comes and all that. He gives it all to God. This is the Lord's ministry. The Lord has put me here. I am subservient. I am submitting to sovereign God. And brethren, when we have that as leaders in, in, in the church, when we have that understanding, it changes everything. And again, we see Paul here, don't we? You guys, I pray you understand. And now, again, I've been part of some Baptist churches that the pastor thinks he owns all of you. The pastor doesn't own any of you, and neither do I. The Lord owns you. You're here under our authority because we serve Christ. Amen? It's a stunning thing. That really should change one's heart and attitude. Now, Paul also tells the elders in our text that he is serving the Lord in all humility of mind. Brethren, the depth of this, this this really hit me when I studied this out. Do you want to know all humility of mind? The, The actual meaning, what it really draws out is an absence of arrogance. Can I say that again? It removes, there's an absence of arrogance that an elder must have. Again, it's that humility. It's that humility of mind. It's that understanding that they are the Lord's sheep. And I am simply here as a humble servant of Christ to serve you in a biblical sense, in a biblical way. It's so important. It is an absence of arrogance. (laughs) You ever met somebody who's arrogant? (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, the thing is... (laughs) This is me 20 years ago. (laughs) Again, I grew up in independent Baptist churches. I was one of the most arrogant, really unloving. It's funny they didn't throw me out of my ear. They should have. Just as I've grown older, you understand what this is. It's a stunning thing. Things I preached, I go back and read it. I go back and listen to it. And brethren, it was never done out of love. It wasn't. Not that I loved them. It was just fire and brimstone. And sometimes we need that, amen? But it needs to be done knowing that the brethren understand that we love them when we do these things. And this is what Paul is saying. There's an absence of arrogancy. And when you see men who are leading the church and they're arrogant, they are disqualified. They are not qualified to lead God's sheep. This is what Paul is saying. There's a humility. He's humble in mind. There's a humility in mind. Really, literally, a holy modesty. Absence of arrogance and a holy modesty. And brethren, this is what Paul is saying to the elders. If you want to do what I did, if you want to lead like I've led, if you want to under, under-shepherd the church, the flock of God, these are the characteristics that one must have. It's an amazing thing. Paul's humility is first in affection and fondness towards God. Again, it's always the center. Everything he preaches, everything he speaks about, all of his testimony is all about what God has done to him. Think of that for a moment, brethren, how Paul described himself, and he knows that. Second of all, it is an indebtedness to all people because he knows the grace that God has given to him. It is a stunning thing. Turn with me to Romans here this morning quickly. Look, Paul was a debtor because he understood the grace and the mercy that he was shown. That keeps one from becoming arrogant. It becomes one from becoming haughty. It, be, it keeps one from being hard towards the sheep. Very important. Very important because we become hard. You can if you're not careful. Look what Paul says here in Romans chapter 1. Again, speaking, of course, of the gospel, which again was his, his center of his religious affections, Christ and the gospel. Look at verse number 14. I am debtor. I'm in debt. Why am I in debt? Well, because of what Christ did for me. I am indebted to him, therefore I am indebted to who? Look at what he says here. Both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile or the Greek. For it is written, the just shall live by faith. This was Paul's loving concern. He was indebted to God, and he understood that, and therefore he was indebted to others to preach the gospel unto them, the soul-saving gospel. And we'll see why that's important as we move along. Look at Paul's humble attitude towards himself, just a couple of verses. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Again, just his humble, humble in mind, humble in spirit, being knowing that he's indebted to Christ for something that he could never pay, knowing that there are others who are trying to pay that debt that they can never pay. It's a stunning thing. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse number 8. Just got done preaching the gospel, and as we always say, he always tied that back to the scriptures, didn't he? The Old Testament. Look at verse number 8. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the greatest of the apostles. I am the least of the apostles. Do you see that humble attitude that he has? I am the least, brother. Now listen, being humble, being meek, being mild does not mean that you are weak and a wussy. It is a far greater, it is a far greater thing, brethren, to have the Spirit work in one's heart to make you meek, to make you mild, to make you humble. Because your natural heart Your natural state doesn't want that. It wants what you see a lot of times. Men lording over the sheep of God, which causes, oh, brothers and sisters, all manner of problems. But I want you to see this. Not only does he say that he's the least, I want you to see this word that he uses three times. Again, brethren, something that never left Paul's vocabulary when he was preaching, when he was teaching. Look there, see if you pick the word up like I did the Bible says, For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, do you see that there again? He never forgets it. Once, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, and yet not I, but the grace of God, which is in me. Brethren, when one forgets that we have nothing, we have nothing. What does it say? What did Paul say earlier, 1 Corinthians? Why do you boast as though you haven't been given it? All of us this morning have talents sitting here, amen? All of us have been, gifts, been given gifts by God. We're just in different roles. We've been given it. That's it. You haven't earned it. You can't, you can't produce it. It is something God gives to you, and Paul is reminded of that, the grace the grace, the grace of Christ. And again, it keeps you and I from being overbearing, from being too nosy, from being and lording over the sheep of God. Look at one more time. Again, this is all just Paul's vocabulary. This is what, he, this is what he's telling the elders. If you want to be good leaders and good shepherds of the church, have these qualities that I have as I follow Christ. Look at Ephesians 3, just another one. There's too many in the Bible, but just look here, a couple of them. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me. Again, he's, grace is, is in his vocabulary. Look at, by the uh, effectual working of his power. Look at verse 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints. <laughs> there it is. There's his humble attitude again. Look at this. Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? Now again, brethren, that's the fruit of the Spirit at work. The natural man will be arrogant, haughty, mean, unloving, all of those things by his nature and by yours. It is the Spirit of God, is the fruit of the Spirit of God that generates these things in men so that they can lead the church of God as he has Rightly dictated. In fact, we see Paul's earnest, not only humility of mind, not only being subservient to God, not only being his under shepherd, but we also see here Paul's love for the church, as we have seen. Again, look back there, if you would, at verse number 19. We could spend a whole lot of time just in verses 19, 20, and 21 concerning what an elder, some of the qualities of an elder should have inwardly. But look what he he says here in verse number 19 there again. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many what? Tears. Look what else he says. And we've looked at this over and over again. I want to look at the tears section of it. And temptations which befell me by the lying in way of the Jews. Those Jews have been after Paul the whole time, just like they were after Christ the whole time, just like they were after Peter the whole time, Silas and the rest of them, brethren. It's a stunning, amazing thing. But I want you to see here again how the love of a pastor, the love of one who has been leading, one who has been, uh, if you will, exhibiting these great Holy Ghost-led qualities within him. I want you to see this. It's an amazing thing. Luke records here that the apostle shed many tears while he was in Ephesus. And I don't want to sidetrack, but I I remember there was a lady that used to come here, and she left because I cried too much. (laughs) She thought I, I cried too much. I don't cry that much anymore. But there are some things we should cry over. Do you understand that? This is what Paul's going to bring out. There are some things that you and I, not only as elders, but as Christians, should cry for. And if we're not, there's something missing, brethren. There's something maybe wrong with us to a degree. It's okay to be emotional. (laughs) It's okay to have tears. It's okay to do that, amen? Jesus wept. I mean, it's an amazing thing. I'm leaving because he cries too much. There are some things we should cry about. Yes, there are. In fact, we all know that tears can come in for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's physical pain. <laughs> Amen. I played football. I wrestled, all that stuff, karate, all that. I cried a few times. I had a few things that were not where they were supposed to be. That can happen, sometimes from great physical pain, sometimes from a heart-rending loss. Maybe there's some sitting here this morning who have wept many tears over, over a loss that they've had. Over overwhelming joy. Sometimes we weep because we are so full of joy. Anybody has got an amen? Amen. Sometimes that is an emotion we have as well. But sometimes the tears come from a deep, intense concern. You ever had a deep, intense concern for someone? Sometimes we weep over these things and cry over these things. In fact, look what Paul did in verse 31. Brother, there's a lot of tears going on in this text. Anybody who says the Christian shouldn't cry, I'm not sure what Bible you're reading. Not that we're led around by our emotions. Anybody who knows me knows I'm not led around by my emotions. It's theology that leads my emotions. The theology makes me tender-hearted sometimes. Amen? Maybe you too. Look there, if you would, at verse 31. Look with the Bible. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn uh, everyone night and day with what? Tears. There it is again. So... Paul was extremely concerned, and before this text, we're not going to get there until, Lord willing, next week, but he's warning them about false teachers and grievous wolves and all these things that are coming in. And he's deeply concerned about their spiritual state, which a good elder should be. Elders should know their flock. Elders should look at them and go, something's awry. That's why if our church ever grows to over 100 we will send some elders somewhere else in South Bismarck or somewhere else because we want to know you. We want to be a part of your life. And when church gets too big, when the fellowship gets too big, you can't. There's even times now where Dean and I and Howard, we, we might see you and never talk to you. That's that's not good when that happens. There needs to be that that deep concern. Look there, if you would, at verse verses 37 and 38. Not only was Paul shedding some tears because of what was coming, but so were the brethren. Look there at verse 37. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, souring most of all for the words which he spake, that they should, not see, his, they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. So here we have Paul weeping with tears over their concern. These brethren are are sorrowful because of the great loss. They were not going to see Paul again until eternity, which they've seen him now, obviously. But that was their concern. They were concerned about the apostle Paul. In fact, look what Paul said when he wrote to the church at Corinth. Look at 2 Corinthians quickly there, if you would. Again, Paul's great concern for the spiritual well-being of the flock of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just a couple of them here. He's talking uh earlier in the text and I'll just we'll just jump down to verse 4 there, but he's talking about making one who is in sin sorry for their sin. And he's talking about that and then he says this, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. So again, there's Paul the pastor, Paul the emotional, if you will, who's led around by theology, but he's, he's got this great love for the church. Not only does he have a tearful love for the church, you know who else he weeps over? The lost. The lost. He weeps over the lost. Look here, if you would, at Philippians. Again, Paul bearing his soul to us. He weeps over the saved. He weeps over the church. He weeps over the lost. Look here in Philippians chapter 3, if you would. Look at verse 17. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse number 17. Brethren, be followers together of me and Mark them which watch so as ye have us for an example. There it is again, Paul not replacing Christ, but he's saying as I follow Christ, follow me. I am a good godly example for you. Look what he says, verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Here's Paul. Again, we know his love that he had for his fellow Countrymen, his fellow Israelites. His prayer to God in Romans 10, right, was that they might be saved. And so again, we see Paul here as one who is just, if you will, tied so fervently to the brethren. His great concern, their concern for him. He's concerned about the church, he's concerned about the lost, he prays. For them as well, And finally, we don't have time. I'll give you the verse. Everybody knows the Old Testament verse, Psalm 126, right? Verses 3 through 6. It says, we go weeping, amen? Exceeding joy as one sees the fruit of God, right? Bringing in the sheaves. He's, they're preaching the word of God. They're watching the fruit of the preaching of the word of God. And the psalmist says, we come weeping, seeing what God has done. So we see all of those emotions. We see all of that in Paul's life and in the Bible. Now, This is why it's so important. When these godly characteristics dwell together in a man, there is a holy kind of leadership that the Spirit of God creates. And again, brethren, this is biblical, godly, man, if you will, shepherd-led love for the church. These are the characteristics. and When they dwell together in a man, it is a beautiful thing when the Spirit of God puts that there. So often, brethren, as I said, one is usually missing. One is maybe arrogant. One is maybe hard-hearted. One is maybe these things. But when the Spirit of God truly brings the man that he's called or men that he's called as elders in the church, these characteristics dwell together in him. And brethren, it certainly, it certainly, again, as I said earlier, has the church then that Dwells together, that gathers together, that is in harmony. Can I use the liberals like the the harmony? We're in harmony. But that's a biblical word. They dwell in great harmony together. When a man who has been called by God understands that he serves the Lord, that he's a servant of the Most High God, and when there is within him a modest, if you will, a modesty, a holy modesty, and out of him an absence of arrogance the church truly does and will dwell together in love and in charity and in unity well paul finishes that portion of it there and then he if you will reminds them of another thing turn back to acts if you would acts chapter 20 again as we are working our way down through here together acts chapter 20 look at verse number 20 He's laying that out there, and then he says this And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but I've showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul stands before these elders, again, as he's saying his last goodbye, as he's instructing them before he leaves. He reminds them of their solemn, godly, biblical duty to fearlessly preach. The word of God. That's what he's doing. The, the man of God, the elder, the, the again, Christians, but specifically elders here he's talking to, these qualities need to be in him. And one of the things is fearlessness when it comes to sticking to the truth of God's word. And brethren, we live in a world today that men run like a bunch of sissies when it comes, when they're trying somebody's trying to impose their political correctness and all this garbage on top of them. No, a true man of God, an elder that Paul again is talking to here, will fearlessly preach the word of God. And I want you to notice, when he says all, that's why why we do what we do in our fellowship brethren, because if a pastor just topically preaches, his whole life, you know what he will do? He will veer away from the difficult topics. He will veer away from those things that may cause consternation to the fellowship or may cause consternation to him. This is not what Paul did. Paul said, I'm an example. I'm an elder who did not shrink back from telling you the whole truth. This is so important. In other words, brethren, Paul pandered to no one. He didn't pander, amen, to anyone. Think of that for a moment. He was faithful to God. He neither pandered to the fear of men, which happens. You know, pastors aren't going to say something because they're worried the $10 bill is going to walk out the door over here. (sniffs) Goodbye. If that's all we're worried about is money, we're in big trouble. Do you know the other devilish ditch that pastors fall into? Not only do they fall into the fear of men, but they also fall into something called the favor of men. Wanting to be praised by men. It's a stunning thing, brother. We must be very careful. There's two ditches that the pastor or the elder should not fall into. Neither the fear of men nor wanting to be patted on the back in the favor of men. Amen. What does the Bible say? Woe unto you when all men what? Speak well of you. Woe unto you. Now, you don't want to be mean on purpose. You don't want to be. But again, he laid those characteristics out already, hasn't he? He's already said there's humility of mind. He's already said there's an absence of arrogance. He's already said there's a modesty there within the elder. And then he says, but you do this. You boldly, fearlessly preach all the counsel of God, fearing no man. And this is what he's done. This is what he's laid out. What a beautiful pattern for us, isn't it? In fact, you look there at verse 21, look what he says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, what does Luke do there? He just gives us a little shorthand of the gospel of Christ. He says that you are supposed to preach repentance, a word that nobody likes to hear anymore. Well, if you come here, you'll hear it. But in some places, it isn't even mentioned the Bible gets shut. They're not even preaching the Bible, let alone repentance. In fact, there's an anti-repentance movement out there. You want to know if you want revival in the church, you should call the churchmen to repent. Amen? What is repentance, brethren? It's a change of mind. It's a change in one's natural heart. Because again, let me say, we know what the Bible says about one's heart when we're born. It's the miracle of salvation that changes the heart. There's a change in the natural heart. There's a change in our interests. There's a change in the direction wrought by God. These are the things. This is what he's saying. This is a Reader's Digest condensed version of the gospel. Luke's shorthand, if you will. Not only are we to repent, but look what else. He uses another word, faith. Faith is the ascent of one's mind to the truth of divine revelation that is given out by the authority of God. The Bible, brethren, amen, not my dreams and my visions, but the Bible, what the Bible says, the word of God. This is what true faith is produced by. It is by the word of God. In fact, look at verses 26, 27. Look there, if you would, down in the text. Wherefore, I take you record this day that I am pure from the blood of uh, uh, all men. Can you imagine a preacher who has preached so faithfully? He can say, I am free. I am clear. Because Why? He was fearless. He, he was more concerned about what God thought than what men were thinking. Look at verse 27. For I have not, I have not he says, uh, if you will, shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Again, brethren, this is what happens when one is preaching through the Bible. It makes the preacher, it makes the elder, it makes them address issues they're having in their own lives and in the lives of others, which is what this text did to me again. As I analyze my own heart to say, Oh, am I loving? Am I mild? Am I meek? Am I humble? And that's not a braggadocio thing. It's just things that you have to look at because that's a qualification of an elder. An absence of arrogance. All of those things. a, A holy modesty. He says there that, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. That is fearless preaching. In fact, he recounts it again. Look at Acts chapter 26. Look what he does here again. Just he, he says the same things as he's standing before the elders as he does before anyone. He's standing before the elders and says it, and now he's standing before King Agrippa, and he says the same almost exact thing. Again, Paul's message, the gospel never changed. It hasn't changed today either. Except for men who are trying to change it. Or, you know, men who are trying to make, how should we say, can I quote this? To make Christianity more attractive. (laughs) We often forget the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? If they hated you, remember they hated me first. And that's not an unbiblical thing. When one is teaching the truth, or just simply teaching the Bible. This summer, we, what, we simply stood out in the Capitol grounds and read the Bible. We just read the Bible. And the, the, the unbelievable clause that come out just by doing just that simple thing. It's an amazing thing, brethren, just being faithful. It's not us they hate. You know who it is? It's who this Bible speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a sheep of Christ, it won't be long. If you're preaching the right gospel, where well, it will be turned on you as well. It's a stunning thing. That's going to be one of my practical points this morning. Because again, it applied to my own, my own heart. Look at Acts 26. Look at verse number 19 there. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient on the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them at Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, that, uh, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do the works meet for repentance. There it is again. There's that nasty word that nobody likes anymore. Repent. Repent. Again, it's a changing of the mind towards God. We see that in faith towards the Lord Jesus. You don't repent of nothing. You understand this. You don't just repent. It is a repentance, a changing of the mind. And there isn't just faith in nothing. You know, you see a lot of these, a lot of these play, and I'm not trying to be, you know, too mean, but there's a lot of psycho babble out there, you know what I mean? I mean, you go to some of these 10-step places and 15-step places, and you can have faith in a doorknob, and that's okay. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not okay. The doorknob's not going to change your heart. The doorknob's not going to change your mind. The doorknob's not going to cause you to repent. But the God of Scripture and the Scriptures themselves will. Amen? As we look at them and peer at them, peer at our own lives through them. In fact, I like what Spurgeon said. Side by side with faith, God does indeed put true repentance. They are side by side. Siamese twins that can never separated it's a stunning thing look there now if you will look at verses 22 and 23 all of this we're seeing going along in our text here look at verses 22 and 23 he's boldly preaching he's telling them and giving them instruction concerning what a elder the inner man should certainly possess and then he says this and now behold i go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem not knowing the things that shall befall me there save that the holy ghost witnesseth in every city saying that bonds and afflictions what <laughs> abide me what an amazing thing for paul again to instruct them in fact what paul's doing here in verses 22 and 23 he's actually pivoting if you will from the things that he's that have happened in the past with the elders and he's actually turning now their attention to the future work that the Holy Ghost has called him to in Jerusalem. That's where he's going. He's heading to Jerusalem to take the offering there, amongst other things, obviously here, that are revealed in this text. There are many things that await you, Paul, and it's not a great welcoming while the churches are going to welcome you, but there are some other things that are coming your way. And interestingly enough, the man of God who was fearless in preaching the word of God is fearless and is not turned by one wit that there's things that are awaiting Paul in Jerusalem. What a stunning thing it is. He realizes, brethren, the dangerous road ahead of him, but is detoured, not detoured for one second, because he's bound in the Spirit. Now, that word bound is a word we would understand very clearly. It is a very intense determination to do something and not allow anyone or anything to detour what the mission is. Now, I know some people like that. Do you? I know some ladies. My wife is one of those. You like to call her a little pit bull. When she is determined, this is the idea. We use the phrase, bound and determined. This is what Paul is saying. I don't care what awaits. I don't care what is going to happen. I am being led by the Spirit of God, and I don't care. I am bound and determined to go to Jerusalem, irregardless of what awaits me. What a glorious godly attitude to have it doesn't matter what awaits it's an amazing thing brother when you consider that in fact he tells them not once but he tells the brethren again look at chapter 21 just over there a little bit look there if you would at verse 10 and we're lord willing going to get to agabus but this is What's happening? Look at verse 10. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12. And when we heard these things, both we and they at the place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Look at verse 13. There's more tears again. And then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and break mine heart? For I am ready. Brethren, listen. It's an amazing thing. Not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, as someone who was sitting in my very comfortable office this week, studying this out day after day, had the heater on, had, you know, everything was all nice and tempered, just really nice. This is the kind of verse, brethren, that gets a hold of you. Are you willing this morning to die for the gospel of Christ? Really? We've had such an easy life, brethren. Wednesday night we were praying for those brothers persecuted in India and all over the world. Here we sit again, and I'm so thankful. It's not that I'm not thankful. But it does make you examine yourself and say... Is the faith that deep? Is it that deep that I would die for what I believe? Would I really? This is what Paul says. He's ready not only to be bound but to die there. But then again, Paul in our text reveals something else about his godly view of himself. It's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider this. I've never thought about the Apostle Paul as one who considered himself and looked at himself from an accountant's point of view. Have you? You ever thought about the Apostle Paul looking at his life and going, that's kind of a, you know, it's an accountant kind of view. Look what he says. Look back there if you would. If you look there at verse number, uh, Acts chapter 20, look at verse 24. Listen to what he says. But none of these things move me. Nothing moves me. I'm led by the Spirit, of nothing moves me. Then look what he says. This is accountant terminology, brethren. Look what he says. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear to myself. That is an accountant terminology that he's using there. He looks at his life in, if you will, an accountant's terminology. What is he doing, brethren? He weighs carefully the credits and the expenses that's his life has been, going, that's been going on in his life. I count my life as nothing, certainly not dear to me. He weighs out, brethren, you look there, do you see that? He weighs out the temporal things and the eternal things. And again, brethren, this is something that we Americans got to get a hold of. We have to weigh out the temporal things and the eternal things. This is what he does. His life here is what? Temporal. But what he says in the rest of the text is eternal. It's what's eternal that is important. Seth and I have this conversation quite a bit, and the kids. Talking about eternal things. What's it going to be like, Dad, when you you old goat when you when the Lord takes you? I said it doesn't matter what it's going to be like. What's important is whether or not you have your eyes on eternal things. Because the next 50 years will be gone and you too will have to stand before God. That's what Paul is doing. He's accounting his life, the temporal and the eternal things. Look as he finishes the text. Look what he says. I count my life unto unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's eternal things, brother. The gospel is what has eternal ramifications on your life and on mine. This is what he is most concerned about. In fact, he writes about it again. Look at 2 Timothy as we, we're bringing this to a close. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy, the very last words. We've read this before. The very last inspired words that are written of Paul. He says this, and again, he's counting the cost. He's counting the eternal versus the temporal. Look what he says. Chapter 2, look at verse 4. Look at verse number 6. For I am now ready to be offered. And he's talking about being poured out as a... We don't have time, but if you go there, he's talking about the Old Testament drink offering that would be poured out at the bottom of the altar as a sacrifice to God. This is what he's saying. I'm ready to be sacrificed for the things of God, which he obviously was. He says, I'm being poured out. I'm being offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give, a, shall give me at that day. And not me only, but unto them also that love his appearing. Paul is again weighing out the temporal things and the eternal things that are important. Paul's been in heaven now for near 2,000 years and he didn't live his physical life that long, okay? He was beheaded shortly after this was written. He entered into his eternal rest, that which was always the center of his attention, those things that are lying ahead, that which is future, that which is eternal. This is what Paul was concerned about. In the end, Paul does not count his life dear to him compared to his God And compared, if you will, to the service that he was called into. So let me just close this morning with a practical point. And I'm going to start by what a pastor once said. He said this, what a shame. If we were to just simply say, elders should serve the Lord. Because that's many times what happens. Hey, the elder should serve the Lord. Well, how should the elder serve the Lord? What are the qualities that he should have? Paul laid that out. Amen. You can't just say, "Well, let's just, you know, let's just have the elders serve the Lord." Well, they're serving him, but is under the pretense of who God is and who they are. You shouldn't say that. How sad that is for men to say, "Well, the elders should just serve the Lord." Yeah, so should you as Christians. We all should. It's an amazing thing. And the pastor said, "And then close our Bibles." and tell stories about what that might mean in our experience. <laughs> oh, brethren, may it never be. May it never be. Now, let me ask you this morning as we close, again, from a just a real-life perspective. The eternal question really before all of us this morning is this. Is the gospel that you preach worth dying for? Is it worth dying for? Let me give you a couple that are not. The gospel of moral reform is not worth dying for. We're not trying to morally reform anybody. You can't. That's not worth dying for. The gospel of ecological salvation is not worth dying for. The Lord's going to speak and this place is going to burn like, you know, the liberals are worried about global warming. You ain't seen nothing yet. At the word of God, he will simply speak it, and it's going to, the Bible says, that stuff's going to melt in the fervent heat. In fact, one interesting thing, I don't want to get sidetracked, but just quickly. Anybody know what 75% of the earth is made up of? Water. What's water? Hydrogen in two parts, what? Oxygen. Do you realize that when God, as he's been holding water in its present state, when that state is removed you're going to see an explosion like you've never seen. It's a stunning thing. One other interesting thing. You talk to a firefighter. Again, I'm getting off course a little bit. I want you to get a hold of this and understand this. You know that when steel heats up and it gets burning so hot and you spray water on it, you know what it does? It ignites it. It won't put it out. The heat is so hot that the water you think is going to put it out actually ignites it because of its Because of its composition, what it's made up, H2O. (laughs) Brethren, the ecological gospel is not saving anyone, and it is not worth dying for. Amen? The gospel of the seeker sensitive and being the hippest church in town is not worth dying for. I'm glad this morning that we're not sitting in a fellowship where the pastor has his skinny jeans on holes in his shirt totally un if you will not holding forth the reverence of God. It's an amazing thing. The gospel of political correctness and social justice which has invaded the western churches is not worth dying for. Christ died for one race. You understand that? The human race. I'm white. Some of you are not white. Some of you are darker skin colored than I am, but you are a part of the human race, one race. Christ died for the human race, different colors. That is a putrid, unholy, unbiblical, devilish gospel. But brethren, let me just remind you as we close. There is one gospel that we should die for. It is the gospel that Paul preached. It's the gospel that we have heard this morning. It's the gospel that comes from the pages of sacred scripture. That gospel that never changes. That's the one, brethren, that we should die for. It is indeed a most important thing for the souls of men. That we, as elders and as Christians, fearlessly and faithfully preach the gospel of Christ. That which alone can save. And brethren, more than that and that and that's not more than that, but on top of that are the characteristics that Paul talked about. A man or a woman who's humble, one who is not arrogant, one who understands that they're a servant of the most high God. Amen. That's brethren where we want to be. This is how my heart has been pricked this week. So many areas So many areas. We pray the Spirit of God will work on each of us. Let's pray. Father, we understand that men indeed are frail. They are indeed fallible. We have this thing called a sin nature that we struggle and wrestle with. And yet as we look at Scripture this morning, we see...